program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Right, well, thank you very, very much for braving the global warming to get here. Um, and uh, today's subject is the HEMS Discovery Programme, as you see on the screen. Uh, and it's the, a project which the Institute of Archaeology has been running on and off for some years now. We, the, the first version of it started way back in the 1990s. And this is a community-based archaeological program in which we're involving the wider public outside the ivory towers of University College London. And here you have a, a list of some of our partners and co collaborators. Right, what is it all about, I hear you say? Well, um, many of you will... Uh, should I get rid of some lights? Can you see that? Oh, um, <laughs> is there a light switch? Well, oh yes, there you go. Um, many of you will understand that the River Thames at low tide has a foreshore, a beach, which is exposed at low tide and covered at high tide. And I'm sure many of you have been down there and you're aware that it's covered in various artifacts, clay pipes and shopping trolleys. And uh, as part of our outreach program, uh, we're, we're looking at uh, various initiatives, including these slides over here, uh, represent the um, slides taken last July at the Festival of British Archaeology, where members of the general public were allowed to wander over the foreshore at the tower and find things and have them identified by experts at these tables here uh, to try and engage the general public in stories of the past. Each one of these artifacts has a little story to tell. Um, which is fine. We all know there are artifacts on the foreshore, but how did they get there is the second question. And are they just casual losses? Or, or why are they rolling around on the Thames foreshore? Now, here you see some rather remarkable artifacts which have been recovered from the Thames or from the foreshore over the last few hundred years, not discovered by our program. Here you see some weapons found in the Thames, and here you see a range of objects, including a ceremonial shield and some very high-quality swords and so forth. And archaeologists looking at this, they could be lost. If you had a battle over a ford on the Thames, you could lose weapons when London's being attacked and all this. Uh, but when we get artifacts of that quality, a shield like that you wouldn't normally use in a battle. So archaeologists call that ritual. This is a wonderful term that archaeologists use for when they don't understand something. So a lot of the artifacts in the Thames are ritually deposited in there, unless you can come up with a more sensible reason. That said, if you think about a river as large as the Thames, it is a god in its own right. It is a very powerful force. It's tidal, so one part of the day it moves in that direction, and then suddenly it changes its mind and moves in that direction. And that, that tidal range uh, seems to respond to the phases of the moon. When you have a full moon, the tide drops to its lowest and rises to its highest. So it does seem as though the moon, the heavens, are dictating what the river does. So it's quite understandable that people should expect the river to have godlike 
um, uh, propensities. It's also, of course, a source of drinking water, which is crucial to us, uh, and a source, you know, we can power mills, we can go fishing in it. It's a huge source of life. So I can understand why people would want to throw ritual objects into the Thames, why they would want to engage with the Thames in a spiritual way. However, I don't think every object you find on the Thames is ritually deposited. But it's amazing what we do find down there. Um, over the last few years, we've actually been finding um, objects such as these Diwali lamps and these um, uh, figurines, which quite clearly have been richly deposited in the Thames. So there are communities in London which still see the Thames as um, a godlike entity and still put objects into the Thames um, to, uh, uh, to fulfill some kind of liturgical need. So ritual is a use of the Thames and it continues to this day. However, what we were looking at in the 1990s was a very different version of the Thames. We weren't actually looking for the artifacts that you find there, although they do exist on the foreshore, but trying to find another reason for why there are artifacts on the foreshore, interesting finds. And what was discovered in the 1990s, and some of you in this room were here when we did this early work, uh, was that there were actually stratified archaeological sites on the foreshore underneath the gravel screen, you know, the, the gravel that you walk around on. Underneath it, there are actually prehistoric landscapes in places. Here, for example, you can see the remains of ancient trees which have collapsed. Those trees were once growing on dry land, but as river levels have risen, uh, they've now been inundated and these are a submerged forest now, and the trees have collapsed. All we're left with is the root systems. And here you can see a vast submerged forest being studied by uh, Dr. Sophie Seal of the Institute of Archaeology. Uh, and this is a prehistoric landscape dating back three, four, five thousand years. And that is subject to severe erosion. And that's down at Erith in the, um, on the, the Kent side of the Thames. And not only do we find these prehistoric landscapes, especially in the east of the Thames Estuary, um, east from London, um, but we also find structures related to prehistoric and later London, including famously this series of timber piles, these two rows of timber piles striding out into midstream. These are about a foot across, so these are quite large, 300 millimetres across. And we found about 22 of these forming two lines and uh, a bridge-like structure. And uh, this has been dated to about uh, uh, 3,000 years old. This is a late Bronze Age bridge or jetty um, heading to an island in midstream, the island now gone. And this is not in the east of London, this is at Vauxhall in central London, very close to the confluence of the River Ephra and the River Thames. So um, a remarkable discovery, London's oldest bridge, um, sitting there on the foreshore being eroded every day. And that's really the second point we need to make, is not only are there stratified sites on the foreshore, but these sites are subject to very aggressive erosion by the river. The river is constantly, uh, every time the river levels drop, the river level rips, the river rips across the exposed foreshore, and um, 
areas of peat like this. This is um, a prehistoric peat deposit, very fragile. Once they're exposed, they just, they're ripped away with every tide. So this is um, uh, an, a Neolithic to Bronze Age forest uh, peat marsh, which is just being destroyed every day. You can see there's a meter scale resting up against the top of that. If you were to take this photograph at Woolwich again, you'd see half of that has already gone. So we're losing prehistoric deposits and seem to be feeding back a bit uh, on a daily basis. The slide at the top uh, shows you a little marker that we put down in uh, 2001. And the top of that timber pile next to the... Um, ah. This timber pile, when that was driven into the foreshore in 2001, that was the level of the foreshore. Since then, in what, eight years, the foreshore's dropped that much in this area. And this is the area immediately next to our Bronze Age bridge. So very severe erosion, which we can actually measure, not in millimetres, uh, but in centimetres, practically in feet. That's 20 centimetres, 18, 18 inches in old money. So severe erosion on our archaeological sites. And um, I need to click on the screen. Thank you. So um, we have these sites and we need to monitor them regularly. The thing about intertidal zone archaeology is that it's like painting the fourth bridge. You've got to keep doing it because every time you go down there, the sites are different. At the top here, for example, you can see um, the remains of a fish trap, a series of timber piles which represent uh, an Anglo-Saxon fish trap which dates to somewhere between uh, 730 and uh, 890 AD. So it's uh, you know, uh, over a thousand years old. And this was a series of piles which you put wattle work up along the side. Fish swim into them, Ooh, swim, 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 get caught in the basket at the end. The tide goes in the opposite direction and the fish are trapped there. So it's fixed net fishing uh, in the uh, mid-Saxon period. Now, as we go down there, every time we go there, we'll see, we'll see fewer of these piles. Those piles are disappearing, so we lose some of those, but we gain more piles up this end. So every year we'll eventually be able to record, you know, something like... Are you? <laughs> I, will, I will talk louder. So, in 1995, we found that many piles. In 1996, we found that many piles, but lost the ones there, and so on and so forth. So it's incremental. So in 20 years' time, we'll finally get the plan of the whole thing on paper, but we'll have never actually seen the whole thing. So it's an incremental jigsaw puzzle-like thing. And those mid-Saxon piles are driven into a Neolithic peak deposit, which is now beginning to erode, and in it we found this 5,000-year-old Neolithic wooden club. So this is the very first Chelsea club. <laughs> So they went clubbing in Chelsea in the Neolithic. It's true. Right, so how are we going to approach the fact that every day the Thames is eroding London's archaeology? 
you know, how, how do you actually do that? Well, what we decided to do is engage the general public or the London community uh, in this project. What we've done is we've selected 20 key sites of, you know, we're talking about 16 London boroughs, both banks of the river. Uh, we could do a lot more, but we've just focused on 20 key sites and we've done a high precision survey of those 20 key sites using geomatic GPS equipment, etc. Then we've trained members of um, the London community, some of whom are here, for which, excellent, uh, to be our foreshore record and observation group, which has the wonderful acronym FROG. And what we're training them to do is to go down to those sites once a year, every year, next year, the year after, the year after that, for perpetuity, to resurvey those sites to build up the bigger picture of what's being lost and also to find new things that are appearing. So that's their job, uh, the long-term monitoring of these 20 key sites. In addition to that, we have a, an outreach program where we take uh, members of the public, family-friendly events on the foreshore, uh, schools events, that sort of thing, and we tie all this together with our award-winning website www.thamesdiscovery.org please make a note of that and that uh, it tells us what people are doing when the next monitoring session is and so on and so forth so we use modern um, digital outreach programs uh, to study London's ancient past um, these are just some of the key sites in red uh, we're trying to get them so they spread all the way from the tidal head in the west right the way through the 16 boroughs to Erith uh, in the east. And these are just some of the sites we've got, both banks of the river, all areas, so that we can get a handle on the state of erosion uh, right the way down the river and monitor the whole thing. And there in the top box, you can see some of this high precision survey being undertaken by the Museum of London's geomatics team. Um, they're recording not just the foreshore, but also the river wall and the river stairs. We see all those as part of our site. Um, the sort of things we're looking at are, for example, the remains of old, um, amongst all the prehistoric stuff, we also do all sorts of things. This is the remains of an old waterman's causeway in the days in which the river was the main transport artery. Uh, and we're doing a record of that causeway there. You can see it's in various states of erosion. The central bit's relatively well preserved and the bit toward the river is disappearing fast. So you can see that if we were to re-record that in five years' time, it would be very different. And in 10 years' time, it would be very different again. So uh, constant monitoring of access routes as well as um, all sorts of sites. Here's one of those fish traps, for example, also at Isleworth. There's one line of piles, and there's another line of piles forming a V-shape. And at this end of the V-shape, there will be a basket in which the poor old fish swim, 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 tide turns, whoops, and they get caught. Very simple, and we found uh, over 30 examples of these fish traps up and down the Thames, uh, which, of which quite a few of them appear to be of the early to mid-Saxon period. Also, from time to time, it's amazing what you find on the foreshore. Uh, this wasn't actually found by us. It was found on this site here, 
uh, on the Greenwich Peninsula during a major redevelopment there where these digging machines uh, actually digging on the foreshore turned up a complete whale. Now this is uh, an endangered species now. It's the, the North Atlantic right whale and, um, and so it's unlikely to be modern. So um, London was part of the whaling industry, the Greenland dock and all this, but this appears to be an early stranding of a whale. We do get whales that strand in London. Indeed, in the medieval period, um, people used to eat whale quite a lot. We have records from um, the 15th century um, recording uh, whales of uh, this year's saltings, 2p, uh, 2 pence, 2 old pennies. Whales of last year's salting, 1 penny. Uh, <laughs> So um, Londoners have often eaten whales, but usually the stranded ones. So here we have an example of a stranded whale. Now, it's very unlikely you're going to find a whale actually on top of the foreshore. This was buried at some depth. You would think it would be very unlikely to find a whale walking on the top of the foreshore. Well, <coughs> amazingly, when we were working at the Tower of London, we found these strange bones, which... I think you'll agree, are jolly similar to these ones up this end. So I think we've actually found another bit of whale. Are there any um, mammalian osteologists here today? <laughs> because if there are, I can present you with this piece of whale. Oh. All right, well, anyway, if there are, it's um, over here. So, um, you know, the maritime history of London is quite interesting, plus the flora and fauna and all that kind of stuff. We not only look at um, the foreshore itself, but we also look at the river wall uh, and study that because the river walls are interesting. There's what keeping the Thames out of London. And we've identified the earliest surviving river wall in London um, here at the tower, which um, a team from UCL were recording earlier this, uh, late last year. Uh, can you see on this the, the different phases of walling? You can see up here the stonework is very different from that stonework, which 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 is very different from that stonework. Can you see these uh, roughly dressed <coughs> ragstone blocks here compared to these finely dressed ragstone blocks there? is a patch of repair that this is a much earlier medieval masonry which uh, we think dates back to 1389 and the initial construction of Tower Wharf under the um, uh, do you know who the clerk of works was in 1389 have a wild guess I'll give you a clue he also wrote the Canterbury Tales well done well done, take a, take a mark um, indeed so when Geoffrey wasn't writing his Canterbury Tales he was uh, counting ragstone blocks on Tower Quay. So uh, that, as far as I know, is the earliest surviving, intact, still functioning uh, river wall in, in London. We also find other amazing things on the foreshore which relate to the river wall or river crossing. We found, for example, bits of the old Putney Bridge. Now, Putney Bridge uh, originally built in about 1729 and replaced in about 1865. This is the old bridge. The majority of it was wooden, but it did have abutments made of brick and stone. The two ends were of brick and stone. 
and it was all supposed to have been demolished way back in um, 1865. There you see on this side the old bridge and on this side the line of the new bridge. And on this top slide there you can see um, the 1865 bridge and down here you can see the remains of the um, 1729 abutment still surviving quite happily on the foreshore. So that's quite a nice little ancient monument just sitting there. Um, and wherever we go in London, we keep finding things. You may recognise this as Greenwich Palace. And this is a World Heritage Site up there. And this is one of the first World Heritage Site designated foreshores, which is eroding at alarming speed. And what we're finding on it are the remains of uh, Tudor, i.e. earlier than the Charles II building, uh, the remains of earlier jetties and river stairs on the foreshore. These base plates you see there next to these half-metre scales. Now, these are not bedded in the foreshore and they wash away. So we found about um, 10 of these, but there's only about three of them left now. So we're trying to um, reconstruct the Tudor jetty that was there before the palace was. Another of our major themes is, of course, um, the use of the river for traffic, boats, barges and ships. This wonderful image of Custom House uh, in the city of London next to the tower shows the river with a great range of uh, little boats, barges, sailing ships, hay barges, etc. how busy the river used to be. And we are finding fragments of those vessels uh, all the way up and down the river as hulks or as vessel fragments. Here we're recording one at Custom House, another one we only see at very, very low tides. So we're doing quite a lot of nautical archaeology. And um, the number of broken up hulks and boats is amazing. This is up at Brentford where there's a huge ship's graveyard which we're going to go back to in the summer and try and record um, what we can of London's uh, fast disappearing nautical heritage. Um, going back to Woolwich, you know, we're racing up and down the river. Here you see some very large um, ballast barges, which are pre-mid-19th century. That's the only date we have for them at the moment, um, which are virtually complete. I've got uh, four of them here used as bank reinforcement in their later life, uh, which we're trying to record. Unique type of barge, um, of which we have... Uh, very few documentary records, so we're trying to record those. And the further east we go, the further we go beyond London Bridge, we're actually finding not just boats and barges, but also the remains of ships, big ships, seriously big ships. Here we are at Bermondsey, for example, uh, which is one of the areas where a lot of ships were built in London. As you move east, uh, you are in a major shipbuilding site. Uh, we don't normally associate these days London with shipbuilding, but it was uh, a real centre for shipbuilding uh, from the medieval period onwards until about, 19, until about the early 20th century. And here you see a ship being broken up, actually, not being built, but being broken up on the uh, Southwark foreshore. And to do that, you would lay a platform of timbers on the foreshore and then burst the large vessel on top of it and then systematically break it up. And these timbers on the Bermondsey foreshore are all derived from 
um, 19th century, or in this, this case, uh, 18th or late 17th century ship. So all those are ship timbers lying on the foreshore. And I, I mean ship, not boat. Now this is, um, London not only built ships, it also broke them up. With the advent of steam vessels uh, in the 19th century, particularly in the mid-19th century, uh, iron-clad, coal-powered steam vessels meant the end of the age of the wooden sailing ship. The wooden wind disappeared under iron and steam. And all these magnificent wooden wall vessels were suddenly obsolete and um, needed to be decommissioned and then broken up. And a vast industry arose on the banks of the Thames to uh, break these vessels up. This is uh, a naval ship being decommissioned and then broken up. And there are a number of sites, a huge number of sites on the Thames where these uh, breaking sites have been located. And what we've been finding is the detritus from the demolition, the systematic demolition of these ships. The, the latest one we found was the remains of the HMS Duke of Wellington, which was launched in 1852 as a state-of-the-art uh, sailing ship with 131 guns. That's uh, um, the largest ship of its kind, which is that one, which is that one there. It was broken up at Charlton in um, southeast London near the Thames Barrier, and here you see uh, an image of this. This is all that was left of the largest ship of the day, just a pile of timbers derived from that vessel just lying on the foreshore. You can tell by the curvature and by the joints at the end of the timbers, this is not a house which has been pulled down, but these are clearly from a ship, from a very, very large ship. You can look at the human scales, some of whom are in the audience. So if you don't, you, you can get them to stand up here if you want to know how big these timbers are. These are very large timbers indeed. They can only come from a first rater, and the last first rater broken up on this site was the HMS Duke of Wellington. And the chap at the top corner up there, the yellow bucket, well, they've all got yellow buckets, but that's Elliot Ragg, who uh, identified, who did some research and was able to identify these timbers as coming from HMS Duke of Wellington, which uh, until 1891 was the flagship of the Royal Navy um, before HMS Victory took over that role. Now, the reason all these ships were being broken up was, as I've said, because of the rise of the steamship. And we can also look at that major change from sail to steam, and that's one of our little research themes based on the huge amount of material that we find on the foreshore. I'm sure you remember this, you recognize this character here as Isambard Kingdom Brunel, and this is his great baby, the Leviathan, that is the um, steamship SS Great Eastern, finally launched on July the 21st, 1858. Uh, you know, 700 foot long, a huge, great vessel. The largest vessel of its day. In many ways, a massive innovation in every respect. It was much larger than anything for the next 50 years. So a hugely pioneering vessel, which could take 4,000 passengers and enough coal on it to get to Australia without refueling. That's a staggering leap in technology and had uh, paddle wheels and two propellers and all sorts. So a huge tribute to Millwall that it was able to build such a pioneering vessel uh, between 1854 and 1858. It was so big it had to be launched sideways 
And here you can see it on the foreshore at Millwall, uh, ready for it or being built prior to its sideways launch. You can get some idea of the size of this Leviathan. Now, uh, we've found, here you see the cradles being inserted underneath the vessel, each about 120 foot long, one cradle there, the other cradle there, and both of those cradles are on timber slipways with iron rails on top. And it was on those two slipways that this vessel was hauled, pushed, kicking and screaming ever so slowly down into the Thames, eventually being launched on the 21st of January 1858. Now, um, on land, actually, a fragment of that, one of those slipways still survives. And here you see it at Burrell's Wharf. The um, timber work at the top and then as it starts to slope, you see we have a bed of concrete into which timbers are placed um, going down the foreshore over which there was a second skin of timbers going in the opposite direction and then on top of that the iron rails would have been laid. Now that's what you have on dry land and uh, we've discovered on the foreshore you've got the other end of it. There on the foreshore is the concrete and timber bed of the bottom of one of those slipways, we've actually found both of them now, upon which the Great Eastern was launched um, 150 years ago. So at the top you can see the um, launch site of the Great Eastern on the uh, Millwall foreshore, uh, which we've been recording. In the top box up there you can see um, the SS Great Eastern at New York. That's what New York looked like in um, 1860. Uh, that's when it was uh, a major vessel and here we see the end of the vessel on another foreshore, this time on the River Mersey where it was broken up in 1890. And there you see, can you see these great metal sheets there? This is the bottom. Can look at all the red uh, corrosion, all the rust on the foreshore here. This is the ignominious end of the Great Eastern, the SS Great Eastern, here on the Mersey foreshore, its launch on the London foreshore, and just mere photographs of what it looked like in its um, heyday. So we have the whole life of the dear old innovative venture there. So um, this study of the development of sailing ships and steamships is part of London's history. London played a hugely pivotal role in the development not only of timber sailing ships, but also of steam shipping and globalization. Another of our little research projects has been on um, moving up into the, this is the 70th anniversary of the Blitz. So we've also been looking at um, evidence for the London Blitz on the River Thames. Now, London is extremely low-lying and does flood very easily. Without its river walls, it would be flooded, as you know from the Thames Barrage. Now, here's a question for you. Given that London is so susceptible to flooding, what would have happened if the Luftwaffe had breached the river wall? Here you see a typical section of river wall parapet, and at high tide, the river comes up to there. And you can see vast areas of London are actually lower than the top of the river wall. Um, so it would be relatively easy if you're carpet bombing London to take out the river wall and flood London with one bomb, just as we did with the 617 squadron at, um, 
uh, the Dambusters raid, supposing the Luftwaffe had done the same to us and hit the river wall, vast areas of London would have been flooded. Well, we all know it didn't happen, but it did. What we've done is we've had a look, we were looking at the river wall and we were finding things that looked like river wall repair. So we did a little study of the evidence in the London Metropolitan Archives combined with our fieldwork on the foreshore and this was a project funded by the um, um, University College Public Engagement Unit and with various members of the public including uh, Peter Kennedy uh, we had a look at the logbooks for an organisation called the Thames Flood Prevention Emergency Repair Unit which was set up by the London County Council. They worked in complete secrecy and uh, we found that amazingly the river wall was hit 121 times. Any one of those strikes could have been a major inundation problem. Now, in the height of the... Oh, sorry, but <laughs> this is not a, a, a late Saxon programme. <laughs> the, the screen has cut off the ones. But between 1940 and 1941... Um, uh, Edward, no, whoever it was. Anyway, um, the, in the height of the Blitz, there were 80 strikes between the 7th of September and the 10th of May. So that's two a week during the height of the Blitz uh, on the River Wall. Now, um, oddly enough, not one of those major traumas um, meant London was flooded because of the Thames Flood Unit, the London County Council's Ted Fl Thames Flood Unit, which was worked in complete secrecy. Complete secrecy so as not to upset the morale of the Londoners, who had quite enough to put up with every time they went down to their shelters and sheltered in the underground. They didn't want them to be upset, so it, they weren't secret. And also they worked in secret because they didn't want the Luftwaffe to realise how vulnerable London was. And this information was only released 50 years after the event. Um, they, there were four teams operating in Battersea, Southwark Park, Millwall and Greenwich. And um, here you see the um, Southwark Park site. It's the China Hall Gate, end of Southwark Park, um, where the running track, the sports centre is now. And here you see the Pyramid Wharf site on Millwall. That's two of the depots. The Millwall site does Silvertown, right the way around the Millwall Peninsula to Wapping. The Southwark site does everything from Deptford Creek all the way around Rotherhithe, Bermondsey and Southwark. And then the other two sites did Greenwich and West London. And the chap at the top is a Heinkel 111 on the 7th September, uh, leading the first wave of Luftwaffe over the opening of the Blitz in September, just crossing the timber sheds in the Surrey docks which uh, five minutes later were all ablaze. If you remember the great attack on the Surrey docks on the 7th of September, that's the last photograph of them surviving before they were blown up on the 7th of September when the Blitz began. This shows you the repair team in action, having put up uh, just under 6,000 sandbags in this 90-foot crater on the river wall at Glengall Wharf on the Isle of Dogs, uh, following a strike in 1941. Uh, and that uh, had to remain in situ, uh, sandbags holding the Thames out, 
um, for, until March 1943. So it was almost for two years um, that bomb strike had to be, uh, the whole um, had to be supported by um, sandbags. Here you see uh, Pimlico, um, Dolphin Square. At the top, you can see the whole in 1941. At the bottom, the um, uh, Second World War repair. And again, uh, you know, a 70-foot-wide hole. And these are quite big holes, which could have caused huge devastation. And this one here, you can see, this is the 1941. Um, no, I think this is, 19, this is September 1940. There's a hole in the river wall here. That wall there is that wall there. And you can see the patching up, the shuttered concrete there, which was put in to fill that gap in 1941, a year later. And if you want to know where it is, it's underneath this corner of something called Fulham Football Club. So if you are supporting Fulham, please be aware of the cracks running up the shuttle concrete here, and don't shout too loudly. And this is the most famous of our discoveries um, at Westminster. Again, there you see these photographs by Peter Kennedy. There you see the 1941 photograph, the river wall badly hit, the granite river wall collapsing. And can you make out here the size of the shuttered concrete infill? The river wall is granite, and this sort of yellow tinge is the shuttered concrete infill put in in August 1941. You can perhaps see it more clearly there. There's quite a large hole in the wall, and these tourists are gazing in awe at the competence of the um, <laughs> infill. At the back of the wall, on the landward side, there's a huge concrete buttress supporting the parapet, which is still there. And again, more people flock from all over the world to see <laughs> this design. And here you see how badly it's eroding. That's the um, metalwork eroding, the uh, iron reinforcing eroding out. One day somebody's going to repair this. Uh, but we would quite like them to put a little plaque there because we think this is a very important part of London's history uh, as these guys worked in complete secrecy. We would like a little plaque up there to commemorate the work of Sir Thomas Pearson's Frank, who was in charge of the London County Council's Thames Flood Prevention Emergency Repair Service. So they did a huge job in saving London from drowning. Here you see the, the great scar in the river wall. Uh, their work, because it was in secret, was never publicly recognised. But um, a marvellous job. Um, anyway, um, clearly the Luftwaffe were probably aiming for this, but uh, they could have done far more damage actually taking out the river wall. And yes, in my last two minutes, um, not only do you want a plaque there to recognise the um, work of Thomas Pierce and Frank's team, the but also I should mention that not only do we find modern stuff, we also find ancient stuff. And very recently, quite by chance, uh, we came across the earliest timber structure in London, which dates back to the Mesolithic. It's quite hard to find. You can see the um, high visibility jackets um, working under the watchful eye of MI6. There's all sorts of guns being trained upon us as we um, work on the foreshore there. But uh, we have 
at the moment just six piles. Now we know that site was not there 10 years ago. Indeed, it probably wasn't there five years ago. It's just been revealed by the scour of the Thames. And uh, this is a, a site location map in relation to the Thames Tunnel. They're building a new, Thames Water building a new tunnel under the Thames, and that connects up to all the combined sewage overflows, which are all those numbered ones there. And can you guess where our site is in relation to the Thames Tunnel and the next projected combined sewage overflow? Well, I'll tell you, in case you can't guess. Uh, this is MI6. That's Vauxhall Bridge. And they're going to build um, a great um, interceptor chamber there. And they're going to dig up the foreshore and dig a little tunnel all the way along there. There's another interceptor chamber there and another tunnel through the foreshore to connect up with the Thames Tunnel itself, which is the big one tunneled underneath the river itself. And um, yes, we are about here. So um, here you see the artist's reconstruction of um, Vauxhall Bridge. This is MI6. Vauxhall Bridge, interceptor chamber there. Doesn't show you the tunnel cutting all the way through the foreshore to join up with this interceptor chamber there. But it's right on the middle of our nice little timbers. There's a nice Mesolithic timber, huge great structure. Given that in the Mesolithic period you're supposed to be just wandering around nomads, um, it's a very large structure there, being recorded by dear old Elliot and Natalie and her team. And uh, there we have, all this is going to go when they build this new temple. So it's quite an interesting bit of rescue archaeology about to look. So you can see, I've tried to demonstrate there are a lot of very interesting archaeological sites on the foreshore. Uh, we desperately need the help of the um, general public and all these other institutions to help us record it all. If you want to know any more information, if I haven't got time for questions, you can find it all on our website. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it. Thank you. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk. Thank you.